0: My name's Brandon. It's good to be with you this morning. Welcome to River City. If you're new or visiting, I especially want to say welcome to you. we love to get to know you. Love to get help you get plugged into the community here. Like Becky was saying, uh, small groups is one of the best ways to do that. And this fall, we're diving back into the book of Romans. And so if you want to learn about what it looks like to know God and follow him, then Romans is a great place for that. And so we'd love to have you come check one of those out. Uh, also love to invite you into our brand new fall sermon series. Uh, we're working our way verse by verse over the next couple of months through the, the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And so these are letters written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the ancient city of Thessalonica. And if you're new or visiting, it's just helpful to know that that's kind of our MO around here. We pretty much just kind of pick a book of the Bible and work our way through it together. And uh, sometimes we'll do more thematic or topical series, but by and large, we just pick a book and work our way through. And, and there's a bunch of reasons why we do that, but the main one is just simply that what I have to say is wildly unimportant. Um, But what God has to say and what he thinks and that just matters more than anything. And so the best way for us to prioritize God's thoughts and his priorities is to let his word be the thing that shapes our time together. And so that's that's why we kind of do that around here. And and so that's what we're going to do this morning as we take a look at the first part of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning. But before we dive into chapter 2, if you're gone last week or you're just visiting or you join us for the first time, it's important to understand that just a little bit of the context and the background for for these letters. You see the Thessalonians were a really young group of new Christians. They'd just come to faith in Jesus through the apostle Paul's teaching the gospel. Uh, We read about that in Acts chapter 17, how he'd come to their city and proclaim the gospel. And and we read about how a bunch of people came to faith in Jesus through Paul's teaching in Thessalonica. But what happens is Paul only ends up staying there for just a couple of weeks, a month at most, because uh, the Jews in the city who'd rejected the message of the gospel, they basically run him out of town. They stir up a citywide riot. They arrest the person who's hosting Paul and his companions, uh, and they accuse them all of treasonously defying Caesar for proclaiming that Jesus was king. And so, Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, right, two young pastors he was training, uh, they're forced to leave Thessalonica in the middle of the night, right, all of a sudden. And and because the Thessalonians, they weren't just like uh, evangelistic tally marks on Paul's like uh, gospel spreadsheet somewhere, right, but they were like real people who he genuinely actually cared about, uh, what happens is you see that he's deeply concerned about them, right? In spite of a number of t- numerous attempts that he makes over the course of the following months to get back to them, he's repeatedly stopped, and so eventually, he, fearing the worst, he decides to send Timothy back to go check on these young believers, see how they're doing, make sure they're okay, and, and to Paul's great relief, the report that Timothy returns uh, not only alleviates his fears, but it brings him like a huge sense of encouragement, because what he finds is that even though the Thessalonians had been facing a lot of opposition for their newfound faith in Jesus, um, they're, they're not just surviving spiritually, they're thriving spiritually spiritually so much so that we saw last week at the end of chapter 1 that reports about their life transforming faith in Jesus were starting to like reach all kinds of na- like cities all over the place in their whole region and yet while Timothy's report was largely positive, there's, there's a few concerns that he brings back that spur Paul on to kind of write this first letter to them, and chief of which were some really pressing questions that, that they had about uh, Christ's return, right? this day that Jesus promised that one day he was coming back to deal with evil once and for all and to usher in his kingly rule and reign, set everything right. And the theme of Jesus' second coming, his return, it's woven into every chapter of the book. It's like the central theme in, the, in in both of the letters. It comes up in almost every one of the chapters. But as we study these two letters, what we're going to see is that Paul's not trying to just do like Bible Q&A hour, right? He's not just like trying to answer some uh, some technical questions about what's going to happen on some future day. But instead, what he's trying to help Christians to understand is how the confidence and the hope that should characterize the way that we should look forward to Jesus' return, that that is actually meant to profoundly transform our lives each and every day, right? It's not just some future information for some future day. It's it's something that transforms our lives each and every day. In other words, the, the theme of the whole book, right, is about how faith in Jesus' return produces a sanctifying hope in us. That's why that's the name of our series, Right? See, hope in Jesus' return, faith in his return, it produces a kind of future hope that transforms us from the inside out. It causes us increasingly to look more and more and more like Jesus in the way that we think and act and relate to one another. So as we dive into chapter 2 this week, we're going to see how Paul modeled what that kind of sanctifying hope looked like in the way that he lived and ministered among the Thessalonians. And what I want to show you as we study this morning is is how hope in Jesus' return, it empowers a kind of integrity, consistency in life and in ministry that not only creates, but also restores hope. Trust in and confidence in the truth of the gospel. You see, Paul's critics in Thessalonica, they were trying to leverage his, like, a sudden departure and his continued absence to kind of undermine his credibility with the Thessalonians and therefore the credibility of the the message of the gospel he proclaimed. And so, in an effort to reassure the Thessalonians that he and more importantly the gospel that he preached is actually real and true and trustworthy, Paul responds to these accusations in chapter two by and what he does is he reminds the Thessalonians about their firsthand knowledge of his own life and ministry. And he highlights how the same character and integrity of life that they'd seen in him those months prior that had confirmed and affirmed the, the truth of his message of the gospel, that that's the same evidence they needed to remember in order to be reassured of the truth of his message, of the purity of his motives, and of the genuineness and the, and the earnestness of his methods. You see, in a, in, for us today in a culture whose trust in the church And the message of the gospel has been so profoundly eroded by just like endless scandals and hypocrisy. See, Paul's words this morning, the example that he sets for the Thessalonians about an integrity of life and ministry, man, there are words that we desperately need to hear if we want to live as God's people in the world today. And so I can't wait to show it to you this morning. And with that in mind, let's pray and we'll, we'll dive into God's word and see if we can't see the kind of sanctifying hope. That faith in Jesus' return is meant to produce in us. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for you. And we're thankful for your word this morning and that it is just, I'm always encouraged, Jesus, by the timelessness of your word. God, the truths that are here are such desperately needed, just as they were for the Thessalonians 2,000 years ago, we need them today. And so we pray that the Christ-like example of the Apostle Paul this morning and the way he lived and ministered, that it might be good news for us as we think about the trustworthiness of your word and of the gospel, but that it also might serve for us as an example of what it looks like to honor you, Jesus, as we seek to live for you and point others to you. And so we pray uh, that you be at work in us through your word. We need you for it, God. Amen. All right, well, like I mentioned, we're going to be in First Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning. It reads this way. For you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. For we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal that we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And we're not trying to please people, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we know, uh, for you know we never used flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children amongst you. And just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. And you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy and righteous and blameless we were amongst you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory." Now, like I mentioned earlier on, what Paul's doing here in chapter two is he's he's responding to some, some accusations that that there's some rumors, right, that were circulating in Thessalonica that Timothy reports back to him about when he on his return visit. And what happens is the Paul's critics in Thessalonica were, again, they were trying to take advantage of his sudden departure from them and his continued absence to, to undermine his credibility and sow seeds of doubt around the truthfulness of the gospel. And in his his words in verse 3, they serve as Kind of like a summary that, that kind of gives us this big picture, threefold of the threefold accusations that are being leveled against Paul. Right? He's, he writes it this way: he says the appeal that we make doesn't spring from error, impure motives, or we're nor are we trying to trick you. Right? What Paul's saying is that the truth of his message right the purity of his motives and the integrity of his ministry methods they were all being called into questions by these by these critics essentially what people were claiming was that Paul was just like another one of these self-centered, greedy, manipulative, traveling, sophist, and cynic philosophers of his day. They were were a group of people that were kind of known for just kind of showing up in a city out of the blue, and they kind of come to the center of town, and they draw a crowd by waxing eloquent about their made-up philosophies on life, or playing on people's fears or hopes about the future, or buttering up the wealthy individuals in the city, and all that was in an effort, right, to either make money off gullible and naive people or or garner sexual favors from those who were impressed by their rhetoric or or attract patrons who were willing to exchange lodging and supplies for kind of a moment of a moment in the spotlight right fame by association with with these kind of celebrity figures and once they'd gotten what they were really after, they'd just kind of vanished, just as abruptly as they'd shown up into town, and they'd move on to the next town to just do the same thing. And so with that kind of context, it's really easy to see how how in the vacuum of Paul's continued absence from them, how his powerful proclamation of the gospel that drew a bunch of people to faith, and then this just like out of nowhere vanishing, right, that could have really lended a, a, really, a real degree of plausibility, of credibility to the these kind of condemning comparisons that Paul's critics were making about him, right? Essentially, right, they're they're just saying, listen, guys, Paul's just like another one of those sketchy public speakers who kind of rolls into town, right? Says their thing, draws a crowd, only to kind of get stuff out of people, right? He's not interested in you. He doesn't care about you. He was just here for what he could get out of you, right? Whether that's financially or sexually or provisionally, right? As soon as things got hard, as soon as there was any cost, he bailed, right? Like you cannot trust him. And you certainly can't trust anything that he told you. And I don't know about you, but if I was the Apostle Paul, the fact that the Thessalonians were even considering these accusations to be true, man, that would have really stung. It would have been so easy for him to respond just with like anger and incredulity. Just like, how could you even possibly think that any of that was true? But that's not how he responds at all. Instead, what you see in the passage is he he graciously rebuffs these false accusations, and the way that he does it is by repeatedly reminding the Thessalonians about their own firsthand knowledge of his life and ministry. Right? He highlights five times in the in the passage he uses this phrase: "You know, you remember, you were witnesses." Right? He uses this phrase over and over again because he's highlighting their firsthand knowledge of his life and ministry that had been so confirming. Of of the message he preached just a few months back and and he's telling them guys you saw how i lived among you and that was evidence for you the first time and i want to invite you to back to it i want to call you back to see that what he, what i said and what i did and the way i did it you can trust me more importantly you can trust jesus and so what i want to do this morning is take a look at the way that paul defends each of these accusations that are kind of being levied against him and see what it looks like for us to kind of live with the kind of gospel integrity that that enables a confidence and a trust to be created and restored in the gospel right well the first thing that we see is that paul paul defends the message he proclaims right he defends what he said right paul's critics were attempting to sow seeds of doubt in the thessalonian believers minds about the veracity of his message to them right the message that right in the person of jesus that god the king and the creator of the had become a man, that he'd entered into human history, that he'd lived the life that we were created to live, that he'd died the death that we deserve to die, so that rebels like you and me who had committed mutiny against God, who had rejected his good rule and authority and instead enthroned ourselves as kings and as gods, as the one who, the one, the arbiters of truth and rightness and goodness, and, and he died in our place for our sins so that we might be forgiven and cleansed and, and brought into right relationship with him And but it's not just that he died in our place but that he'd risen from the dead he defeated Satan and sin and death so that that we might live with the kind of confidence and life transforming hope and power as we wait for his return see that was the message that Paul came proclaiming and the claim of these critics is that that's not good news at all Right? at best it was erroneous it's flat out wrong it's incorrect it's just untrue Right, or at worst, it's a lie that Paul's just knowingly perpetuating. Right, and what Paul does is that he, he responds to the accusations by inviting the Thessalonians to remember in verse 2 not only the strong opposition that he endured in order to preach the gospel to them, but even more outrageous things that he'd suffered while preaching the same message in the city of Philippi, the place that they'd come from right before coming to Thessalonica. I read in Acts 16 about how while they were in Philippi, Paul and Silas had been stripped naked, beaten, put in chains, and thrown into prison without a trial. Because what they'd done is they'd invoked Jesus' name and cast out a demon out of this uh, this slave girl who could predict fortunes. and, And so they had infuriated her slave masters, right? What Paul is saying by t- reminding them about these things is that he's saying, listen guys, the only reason, like the only reason we are willing to not only endure that once, but to keep going through that kind of suffering and pain and humiliation is because we are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that what we're telling you is true. Like there is no other reason why we would do that. Sure, people peddle lies and falsehoods all the time, right? But what people don't do is double down and repeat suffering for lies. That doesn't happen, right? When lying starts costing you, when it starts being painful, when it starts being humiliating, right? You don't just like, let's do it again. That worked out so good the first time. See, the fact that they were willing to suffer not once but repeatedly, so that others might come to hear and believe the message of the gospel, Paul saying, "That should be compelling evidence to you. It's the real deal. We didn't mishear Jesus. We didn't misunderstand him. We are real sure. We're real sure. See, but it's not just the the truthfulness of his message that was being called into question." It was the motivations for proclaiming that message in the first place that were apparently to be suspect, right? Paul's accusers, they wanted the Thessalonian Christians to think that his his motives for preaching the gospel were impure. Right, that word that's translated there has very clear kind of sexual overtones to it. Right? Just like those traveling sophists and cynic philosophers who would try to leverage their influence and intrigue and celebrity to kind of satisfy their own sexual desires. The critics were just saying, yeah, that's just like all Paul's trying to do with you guys. He's just trying to get something out of you. And it's a claim to which Paul again reminds them in verse 10 that they just know flat out is completely untrue. Right? He says both you and God are witnesses in verse 10 of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you. He says, guys, you saw firsthand. Right? You were there, right? Like this was not a third-hand information like you saw. There was nothing impure about how I treated any of you, how we acted around any of you, right? We weren't trying to seduce you. We were trying to save you. Paul says, Right, he, he said, we live in such a way that there wasn't even a hint of impropriety that could have gotten in the way of the message of the gospel. They were really deliberate about that. And so, so maybe it wasn't sexual gratification that was motivating Paul after all. But if it wasn't that, then, then it was probably just, it was probably just that he was really just desperate for the praise of people. Again, like many of those traveling philosopher entertainers, he was just desperately starving for affirmation and approval from people. And the honest truth is that a whole lot of people get into leadership for that very same reason. You and I, we are all created to need outside affirmation and approval. That is not unique to some people. All of us are wired that way. And if we don't find the approval and the affirmation we are looking for in God through the person and the work of Jesus, then what will endlessly, invariably happen is that we will just endlessly search for that approval and affirmation in people. Right? We try to impress others. We try to earn their favor with our physical or intellectual or social skills. Right? Leaders try to do that with sports and school and the workplace and even in ministry. Right? It happens everywhere. Right? And all that only leads to two kinds of leaders. Right? If you're just leading out of just like a desire to please people, right, to, to get glory, to get affirmation from people, that only leads to two kinds of leaders. One, it leads to hyper-controlling, kind of like autocratic leaders who just demand respect and approval of others. Or it leads to just like these really weak just just no no conviction kind of unconfident leaders who are just so desperate for the praise of people that they are willing to do or to say anything to get it. And they'll compromise their convictions and they'll compromise the integrity of their ministries and they'll just do it because they're just so desperate for people to like them and to think much of them. Spoiler alert, neither of those are godly kinds of leadership. Instead, Paul says, he says, our motives weren't impure. They weren't misdirected. He says, we weren't trying to please ourselves. We weren't trying to please you or anyone else. He says at the end of verse 4, we're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. He's telling the Thessalonians, the thing that we were most concerned about wasn't what you thought about us. The thing that motivated us, the thing that drove everything that we did We cared most about what God thought. Everything we said, everything we did, it was ultimately because we cared most about his opinion, not yours. And he says, if you don't believe us, well then here's the reality I know that God's the one who tests our heart, and so I'm just gonna let him be the one who judges. Right? Paul says he God had tested and approved them, he'd found them true and genuine. Writing about these verses, John Stott, he says this. He says, No secret of Christian ministry is more important than its fundamental God-centeredness. For the stewards of the gospel are primarily responsible neither to the church nor its synods or leaders, but to God himself. He goes on to say, On the one hand, this is a disconcerting fact because God scrutinizes our hearts and their secrets and his standards are very high. On the other hand, it is marvelously liberating. Since God is a more knowledgeable, impartial, and merciful judge than any human being, to be accountable to him is to be delivered from the tyranny of human criticism. You see, Paul was living like he was living because he valued God's opinion most. He was trying to please God, not people. And what happened is that he was free he was free he was free to act and to speak not to get something from people but to give something to them right he didn't he didn't serve them and lead them in order to like to because he needed something from them he served them and led them in ways that in the eyes of many would have lost him approval and lost him praise because he knew that in the eyes of god it accomplished the very opposite thing See, the God focused nature of Paul's motivations, they freed him, as Stott says, from the tyranny of human opinion. And it served as a safeguard against any such accusations. Paul says, Guys, just look at my life. Listen, you don't say the kinds of things I said. And you don't do the kinds of things I did if you are trying to get praise from people, right? Everything I did, everything I said, it accomplished the exact opposite thing. It doesn't make any sense that argument is so dumb. See, Paul's life was characterized by seeking the praise of God, not the praise of people. And so he was free to love and serve people in ways that lost him their approval. And so we've seen Paul defend what he said, the message he proclaimed, right? Why he said it and his motivations for it. And finally, what we see him doing in the, in the last part of the chapter is we see him defending how he ministered to them, right? We see him defending his methods, right? Verse five, he tells them, hey, guys, I never used flattery with you, right? I didn't try to butter you up to make you feel great about yourselves and your intellect so you just like believe what I said and trust the gospel. Just, just spoiler alert, the message of the gospel is not a flattering message. The message of the gospel is that your sin is so bad and you are so hopelessly enslaved to it that God Himself had to die in your place to overcome it and set you free from it. Right? The gospel is not a flattering message; it's a humbling message. He goes on in verse five to add, "We didn't put on a mask." To cover up greed with you, so we didn't flatter you, and we didn't just like put on a mask and do this duplicitous thing, right? We weren't one way in public and another in private, right? We weren't just like putting on an act so we could like swindle you out of some money or get you to like us and get something out of you. We didn't have ulterior motives, right? Neither he says did they use any kind of manipulative trickery to win people to faith in Jesus, right? The word that's translated as trick there in verse three—it's a a word that fishermen would use. It's where they used to describe like what it looked like to fish with bait. Right, it was kind of like the. It's like a word that kind of meant to bait and switch somebody. Right, Paul says we didn't try to pull a little bait and switch tactic on you. Right, we didn't preach the prosperity gospel. Right, we didn't come just being like, hey, listen, if you put your faith in Jesus, you're going to be healthy and wealthy and wise and everything's going to go great for you. Spoiler alert, it didn't really do that for us. But like, like that's that's not what happened. Right, he not only. They not only saw the suffering and pain and humiliation that he endured in order to preach them the gospel, he told them about how that's what happened to him previously. Right? This wasn't a bait and switch gospel he presented, it was the real thing, the real deal. You see, both the message and the messengers were up front from the beginning. Paul, finally, Paul says that not only was he didn't use flattery, Right? He, didn't, he wasn't duplicitous. Right? He, he, he didn't use trickery. But he says at the end that he wasn't demanding or domineering either. At the end of verse 6, he says, as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority with you. Right? He's talking here about using his God-given calling as the basis for demanding respect from them or for requiring financial support, both of which he was absolutely entitled to. But he doesn't do either of those things. He doesn't demand respect. He doesn't require financial support for them. Instead, what we see in verse 9 is that he goes out of his way to make sure that he is not a burden to them at all. He says in verse 9, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You see, far from using the Thessalonians to minister to himself and serve himself, Paul gives himself to serve and minister to them. He uses these three metaphors to describe the kind of familial love and relationship that characterize his ministry methods among them. Right? He says in verse 7, he says, Instead, we were like young children among you. That word, that's translated as young children, there. It's meant to evoke this idea of innocence, right? A lack of superiority, right? Little kids, they are not entitled or duplicitate, right? They're just like they're just honest, right? Like to a fault, little kids are honest, right? In a good way, they don't really have a filter, right? You you absolutely know when a little kid is telling you something, you know that that's that's like for sure what they think, right? You are under no illusions. Right, one of my favorite things is when, when I'm working downstairs in my office and my kids get home from school, oftentimes they'll, they'll come running down the stairs because a bunch of their toys and stuff are downstairs, and they'll come and they'll notice me in my office, and they'll, Emma will come in or Caleb will come in. They'll, they'll just give me a hug, and they'll say, Hey, Dad, we love you, and then they'll just run off to go play. And you can be real sure that's the real thing. Right, they're not trying to like weasel a snack out of me. Right? Like They're not trying to like get me to take them for ice cream later. Like they, just, they just saw me and like, hey, I love you, Dad. Moving on to go play Legos. right? Like, but it's real. See, that's how the Paul was with the Thessalonians. He didn't lord his authority over them. He wasn't trying to get something from them. He was innocent with them. He was genuine with them. More than that, we see that he was tender and caring like a nursing mom. The verse that's translated there as "carrying" it literally means to warm with body heat, right? Like imagine like in the, like the cold darkness of a Midwest winter, right? It's like minus a thousand out, right? And you got a, a new mom and she's got like one of those baby Bjorns like stuck to her, right? And it's like a minus a hundred, but that little, that, like that tiny baby is like sitting at like 200 degrees in that thing, right? And they're just like sleeping away like it is the greatest cocoon of warmth that has ever happened, right? You see, one pastor put it this way. He says, in the coldness of the godless Roman Empire, Paul was warming their hearts spiritually by drawing them close to his own. He goes on to add that out of this kind of deep motherly love and affection for them, he says, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. See, Paul didn't just share the content of the gospel, he shared himself with them. See, you and I, we we live in a world where you have access to 10 million great books and commentaries in the palm of your hand. I don't know if you've realized this or not, spoiler alert, you can find better preaching and teaching than I can give you on the internet, right? Like, you can find worse preaching too, that's not the point, right? But like, like, there's other options out there, right? See, the, the issue is that we don't have a content problem. We have a relational problem. We, have a, we don't have a content deficit. We have a relational deficit. See, your phone cannot make disciples. All right, listen, don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not opposed to smartphones. I really like them, right? Especially if they're iPhones. Objectively better, right? <laughs> right? But your iPhone, as gray as it is, cannot make a disciple. Right? It is a great tool but disciples are not made digitally. They're made relationally. They're made in the context of real life. If COVID didn't teach you that, then I don't know how to like I don't know how to help you. I was thinking back about this verse this week. I was reminded about my freshman year of college, I realized as, well, that was almost 20 years ago, which means I'm old, right? But I remember. My freshman year of college, I was coming off a really rough summer. My longtime girlfriend at the time had broken up with me the day after we graduated from high school. That was awesome, right? And I had spent the summer working like just a miserable job, just like wallowing in self-pity. But if there's one thing I had realized that summer is that like what I really needed more of was God in my life. On the very first day of college, I remember I had moved into the dorms and there was an upperclassman upperclassman guy named Ben Wood. He, he reached out to me. He was part of a Christian group on campus called InterVarsity. And Long story short, Ben just like invited me into his life. We hung out all the time. We ate pizza. We played guitar. We talked about school and grades and girls. And we talked about faith. And we talked about the gospel together. And over the course of that year, I saw a peer choosing to prioritize his walk with Jesus. Not because somebody else thought that that should be a priority for him, but because it mattered to him. And I saw how the truth about Jesus was transforming his whole life, not just this little compartment on one day of a week. It was changing the way he thought and the way he acted and the way he related to people. It was causing him to love and to live in new profound ways. And I will be honest with you. I cannot remember much of the content that Ben taught me. I just, I can't, I can't remember much but I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that the year I spent living alongside him, that changed the trajectory of my life. And he wasn't perfect, but what he did do is lived with a Christ-centered integrity and he invited me into his life so I could see it. And God used that to change my life. See, Ben, he didn't just share the gospel with me. He did. We talked about it a lot. But he shared his life with me. And that made all the difference in the world. See, and like Paul adds in verse 11, Ben encouraged, he comforted, he urged me to live a life that was worthy of God myself. See, Paul uses, that's the third kind of metaphor Paul uses. He describes himself as a father to them. See, some dads are, are just kind of tough guys who think that the best way to train their kids up, just like every lesson, you gotta learn it the hard way, kid, right? We're just gonna like, everything's gonna be hard. We're always gonna be like, just challenge, toughness, just like we're intense all the time. Right? Other dads are kind of on the other end of the spectrum and they're just like kind of glorified cheerleaders of their kids, right? It's just like, listen, we only have encouraging words. We never say anything negative. Like, we're just like, we're just like rooting for you. No matter what happens, we love you. Like, no, 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 no critiques, right? But Paul instead, he takes the godly dad approach as he spiritually fathers the Thessalonians. See, Because Paul says that he was both encouraging and urging. Right? He was both tough and tender to them See, and the truth is that the best dads and the best leaders are both. One pastor I listened to this week, he put it this way, "So the best leadership contains both gentleness and challenge. If you get love without challenge, you'll produce a kind of coddling environment where no one ever reaches spiritual maturity. But if you have a strong challenge environment without love, people will always feel like they're falling short and they'll feel crushed." The beauty of both challenge and comfort is what produces spiritual maturity. So you need both. See, Paul's ministry, it wasn't characterized by domineering or dubious methods. Instead, it was characterized by familial love for the Thessalonians. His motives weren't impure. They weren't self-focused. They were God-focused and others-focused and his message wasn't an error or a lie. It was the testified, verified truth of God. In other words, what Paul's trying to help the Thessalonians to see is that his life is the evidence that his message was true, that his motives were pure, and that his methods were full of love. See, the question that you have to ask is like, just why did Paul live that way? Like, that sounds like a hard way to live. Like, that kind of integrity, that is hard. That kind of consistency, that is tough. Why did Paul live that way? Why did he do ministry that way? That's because it's how Jesus ministered to him. You see, Jesus' ministry to Paul as the light and the truth, Jesus proclaimed the truth to Paul, the truth about who he was and what it meant to follow him. And he entrusted Paul with that truth of the gospel to spread it. And Jesus wasn't motivated by fear or selfishness or greed to minister to Paul, but out of love for him, Jesus comes. And Jesus' methods for ministry were both tough and tender. He knocks Paul off his horse and he blinds him in Acts chapter 8, only to then speak gently to him and to heal him, but through the, through the relationship of a humble friend. See, Jesus was not domineering. He was humble and he was sacrificial. Philippians 2 says it this way, that he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing. And he took on the very form of a servant. See, and what we're doing every week when we celebrate communion is we are remembering and we're celebrating the humble, loving leadership of Jesus. And reminding ourselves that his, bo- his broken body and his shed blood are the means by which he leads a people to himself. And so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or standing with him. It's a chance for you to remember his humble, loving, familial leadership of you. And so if you put your trust in Jesus this morning to be your forgiver, to be your humble leader, or you do for the first time this morning, then I want to encourage you during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There's two tables, one on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread in the juice as as this joyful reminder of all you've put your faith in Jesus to be and to do for you. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, maybe you're figuring out what it means to follow him, or you are too like you just have too many scars and too many wounds from church hurt and from scandals and all that kind of stuff and hypocrisy to like put your faith in him, yet to trust where he that he really is true, that he really is good, that he really loves you. Then I just want you to know you are absolutely welcome here. But I'd also encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and he's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that trusts him completely. That comes to him. The humble king who can make you right with him. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is and River City is. And we would love to help you get to know him. And so wherever you're at this morning, as we take communion and sing, I want to encourage you, talk with God. See, for some of you, you're here this morning and you have experienced a lot of church hurt and you're coming into this morning with a lot of baggage. You've had terrible experiences with prideful pastors or coercive leaders or dysfunctional churches or you just look at all the scandals and all the hypocrisy you see in the news and you're tempted to just like chuck everything just to be like, you know what? Like I'm done with God, I'm done with church. Like I just, I'm out on all of it. And my prayer for you has been twofold this week. One, my prayer has been that you wouldn't less distrust in the people of God and in the church, rob you of intimacy with Jesus himself. See, Jesus gets it. He sees, he sees the hypocrisy. He sees, he sees the pain that that causes. Right? Jesus saved his harshest critiques for the religious leaders of his day who were hypocritically using their power for their own good and oppressing people. He literally calls them sons of hell. That's strong language if you didn't realize You see, and so whatever critiques you have of the church, I can guarantee you, Jesus' critiques are probably stronger than yours. He gets it. But also, I need you to hear this morning, he has proven that that is not who he is. That's not who he is. That's not how he will treat you. You can trust him. Matthew, he says that he is gentle and humble of heart. In Isaiah, it talks about the Messiah, says that he, a bruised reed he won't break, a flickering candle he won't snuff out. Instead, King Jesus comes and he carefully heals the broken and he blows gently on those whose faith is weak and he fans it back into flame. You see, he is safe. And you can come to him and you could reveal your heart to him, and you can trust him to be gentle with you. My prayer has been, not just that you might let distrust of the church go and embrace intimacy with Jesus, but my prayer as well has been that at River City, right, that in me and in Aaron and in John, your elders, and the small group leaders and the worship team leaders and the people you encounter here on Sunday morning, that you might experience the kind of integrity of life and ministry that begins to create or restore the credibility of God's church and, more importantly, the gospel. And I realize that that takes time. Like, that doesn't happen overnight. But my prayer is that you might give us a chance. I can't promise you we will never let you down. And I can't promise you we will never hurt you. But I can promise we are doing our best to love you like Jesus has loved us. For the rest of us who call River City home, the invitation as we think about responding to these to Paul's words this morning to the Thessalonians is that the invitation is that you and I might be characterized by the same kind of Christ-like missional integrity that Paul and Silas and Timothy were that we would be convinced of the truthfulness of the gospel, that our lives, our committedness to Jesus would proclaim the truthfulness of the gospel, that our lives would reveal the God-focused motivations that drive us, and that they would, that the methods we use to love and serve people would reveal that the thing we care most about is God's glory and the good of others. See, that's hard, church. Living with a kind of consistency and integrity over time is hard, and it's costly. But if we want to be a people that reflect the ministry of Jesus himself as he has ministered to us, then even if it's hard, it's worth it. And by our lives and our consistency and our honesty in the midst of our failures, may we proclaim the one who has loved us and died for us. And might our lives show him to be the best news of all? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for you this morning. We're so grateful that the Apostle Paul's example of, of missional integrity with the Thessalonians, that it's not just some aspirational thing we should just like hope for, or some model we should just try to imitate, but Jesus, it points us towards you. And it points us towards the ministry in which you have served us that way, as the true and better Paul, whose message was completely true and whose motives were completely pure and whose methods were genuine. And we pray, Jesus, that out of responding to your ministry love for us, that you might empower us to be characterized by the kind of integrity of life and ministry that both creates and restores a hopefulness and a confidence in the truth of your gospel. We can't do it on our own, God. We need you. Would you empower us, we pray. Amen.